Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 87, verses 1 through 7. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born here, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Our New Testament reading for today is Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord.
morning and almost happy new year to all of the all of you here that are visiting and um yes we do pray that you meet the lord this morning um let's start off with a word of prayer uh ask the lord to stir our hearts and to open our ears as we hear from him oh father we thank you would you have brought us this far to the the very end of an of, of a year and at the brink of a new year and yet, Father, we know that much of us has not changed, even though if we have hopes for massive change in the coming weeks, days, and months. Father, one thing we can count on, whether we keep our resolutions or whether we, whether we fail, but you are the unchanging God. You've promised to be with us, and we trust, Lord, that you're with us now. May you open our hearts to receive your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we are, we have spent the past three weeks in our Advent series in the Psalms, and that was, a, that was a break right in the middle of our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. So we are back now in Ephesians, um, and the first 13 verses of chapter three. I want to start off this way. So it was 1960, and many, many of you will be very familiar with the story as it goes on. Uh, in 1960, there was this little black girl no more than six years, six years of age. And she was going to her first day of school at this elementary school called William France Elementary. As she approached, she was met by and had to pass through an angry mob of Caucasian protesters consisting mostly of parents and their children. And why were they protesting? Well, as if, if you're familiar with the story, they were protesting her. The fact that this little girl was coming to an all-white school. And as you Google pictures, you'll see that one little boy held this sign that read, all we want for Christmas is a clean white school. And her name, as you're probably familiar with, is Ruby Bridges. Now, I wasn't around in 1960. Some of you were and can vividly remember those days when the world was very different. So different that little six-year-old minority girls would be met with cultural hostility had they dared to be in spaces where they were unwelcomed. So fast forward 63 years, and we find ourselves here today in 2023, entering into 2024. And all of us in here will be appalled and are appalled at, that such mindsets ever existed. Not a soul in here will give a nod of approval. Not a soul in here believes that little black and brown girls shouldn't be allowed in white spaces. But Why? Why do you and I believe this? Why is it so crystal clear to you and to me that that mindset is horrendous? Why do we believe this when the vast majority of our American ancestors of just a few generations ago couldn't fathom it any other way? I mean, if you want to, you can Google the name Ruby Bridges and you'll find scores of black and white photos with angry mobs and this stoic little six-year-old girl walking through them just to go to class. And we'll find ourselves laughing at it, not laughing as though some comedian just, you know, revealed the punchline to a joke, but the kind of laughter that mocks at the absurdity of the entire scene. And underneath our giggle, we say, how is this mindset even possible? What, what fools? Why is equality of all people so seamlessly part of our common sense today? So much so that 
when we drive past our local middle schools and high schools and we see various ethnic groups represented, we think nothing of it. It's not that we don't care, it's that we simply don't see how remarkable it is any longer. And here's why, precisely because it, its impact has been so utterly remarkable. And I think we see something like that here in our text. God has visited this world in the person of Jesus Christ and through his life, his death and his resurrection, he has shattered deeply dehumanizing and destructive ways of living and thinking. And as one person has put it, he has gifted the world with a happiness that breaks in from without like any catastrophe. And I think, if I'm honest, I think we have grown so familiar with the remarkable Christmas and Easter story that we actually miss how remarkable it is. And that's what I want us to see this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ really is a gift that is broken into the world and shattered these dehumanizing and destructive assumptions. And he has ushered in, ushered in a revolutionary happiness. And what's striking about it, you would think it'd be enough for him to say, Jesus has brought this in. And he does say that. But he says that this happiness, this good news, you know how the world sees it? Through the church. That's what's shocking is that it's through the church that we see this. And I think this is where we, being so familiar with church, can yawn at what he just said. That the church is a place where one touches and tastes this revolutionary happiness, this joy that's broken into the world. So let's look at these two assumptions in our text. And I believe there's, there's two. One is the assumption about power, and the second is the assumption about the church. So to see this, we have to gain our traction in Paul's argument, or regain our traction in Paul's argument. So remember, back in chapter 2, Paul does two things to make one big point. The first thing he does is to tell us that God has had mercy on you in a remarkable way. He saved you from sin and united you and I to Jesus Christ. And he did it in the most unlikely of ways, through the death of Jesus on the cross. That's the first thing he does, and that's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The second thing he does is to tell you why he did the first one. And that is to create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he did this in the most unlikely of ways, among the most unlikely of people groups. And that's the latter half of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. But I want you to pay attention to what Paul does in our text. He uses the word mystery. Do you see that there? He uses the word mystery. He uses it three times. And it takes him up until verse 6 to tell us what this mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, you and I use mystery quite differently, don't we? It's quite a, quite a loaded term. When we say something is mystery or mysterious, what we really mean is that it's unknown or unknowable. It's more like a riddle. We must figure it out or, or crack a code. But when Paul says mystery, he means something that will be known once God reveals it. In other words, it's knowable. This is something that's knowable to you and I, not a riddle. 
it's more like a secret that is waiting to be revealed by the one holding the secret. But I think Paul's doing something else with that. You see, he's speaking to first century European Roman Christians, influenced by Roman and Greek philosophy. And they would understand mystery to be something hidden in riddles and rituals, only available to the elite class, only available to philosophers, unavailable to the lower class. So by the fact that Paul says that a mystery has been revealed to both Jew and to both Gentile, he has cut straight across assumptions. We'll return to verse 6 in a bit, but for now I want us to consider what this sounds like to a group of people of all classes. For the rich Roman to hear that the poor Roman next to them has the same access, has the same inheritance. And I think that's what Paul is doing. In one sentence, Paul cracks and smashes his social code held deeply within their assumptions. And he offers a happiness and a freedom that rescues them from sin and, de- and humanizes them in a way nowhere else seen in the world. I'm not sure many of you have seen this movie, but in the 1978 film, The Wiz, it's sort of a, 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 a black urban rendition of The Wizard of Oz. There's these scenes where the wicked witch is finally killed, finally destroyed, and her, her, her evil monkeys it's, it's an amazing scene. They start shedding their, their, their armor. And next thing you know, they're, you see them, they're humans. And they flood the streets dancing and singing. It's a wonderful scene. With these, 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 these evil monkeys held under the spell by a wicked witch are free now to dance and sing. And I think that's what the gospel does. So, Assumption one, the assumption of power. What is, this, what is the assumption here? Well, simply, you've heard it many times before, that might is right. Might is right. And he undercuts this in a subtle way. Look at verse, verse one, right there. And Paul does this many times here in, in Ephesians, but many times elsewhere in the gospel, in, in, in his letters. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Don't brush over that. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Who was Paul a prisoner of? Christ or Rome? Christ or Rome? But notice what he says. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So the very people group that that, that imprisoned him are the ones he says, no, I'm in prison for you. Not because of you. I want you to see how, how this would sound. So, parent, consider this. You punish your child for doing something that they shouldn't do. You're disciplining them. Whatever mode of discipline you choose, you're doing that. Let's just say you ground them, right? They've done something that you are like, that is not what this family does. You are grounded for a month. And they're grounded. And then you find that they're writing letters to their friends saying, I so-and-so, I mean, I am grounded for Christ. You would say, what? <laughs> no, you're not. You're not gr- you're grounded for what you've done is wrong. You're grounded for their disobedience. By no means are they grounded because of Jesus or for Jesus. 
Now imagine if you keep reading on, he says, I am grounded for Christ and for my parents. You would think your child is insane. Like, wait a minute, how dare you? I am the authority here. I'm the one that put you on punishment. There's no way you can turn that around. Well, Paul is doing that very thing right here. He's undercutting Roman authority. Rome is punishing Paul. But Paul says, no. This is for Christ, because of Christ, and for Gentiles. But I think there's a better example. Jesus hung there on the, on the top of the hill Golgotha. And he was a preeminent display of shame. And weakness. And he was in view of all for the crowds to see. And he mocked, and as the crowds mocked him, he, gasped, he would gasp for air. But do you remember he was not alone there on the cross? He wasn't alone there on the cross. He was between two thieves. And as a derogatory as word as this may be, some would say that these were two thugs. The lowest of the lowest, two men considered to be the dregs of society receiving their just due. Do you remember the conversation between one of them and Christ? With the crowds, Roman guards mocking in the background, and the spectacle of shame and Roman might as prevalent as, and obvious as ever. One of the men looks at faith and asks in faith Jesus. He asks Jesus this question, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He asked, for, he asked for the blessing to be remembered. And Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. Wait, whose kingdom? This is a man on a cross. With a kingdom? And this man who is suffering at the, at the hand of Roman might, himself as a kingdom. And then he has to be remembered? Rome was trying to wipe the memory of him off the face of the earth. And Jesus, shrouded in shame, bearing the sins of mankind on the cross, can look at that outcasted man and offer him a blessing of peace and a promise of happiness. What was meant to dehumanize the criminal, the man found dignity in Christ. Was what was to be nothing but utter shame for the criminal, and Jesus became his glory. And I don't think this is a reversal of fortune or a turn of fate. The criminal still died. He still suffered. The crowds didn't hear Jesus offer this blessing, and if they did, it would have meant nothing to them. This was nothing but a whisper in the ear of a dying man. Two dying men, and one whisper is a blessing. And he welcomes him into a kingdom that he didn't deserve. No, this is a magnificent breakthrough of happiness and joy into a world inwardly bent on evil and oppression. And I think this scene becomes a paradigm for the next assumption. If the first was power, that power is not might. If anything, when we follow Jesus like a hawk after his prey, when we follow Jesus and we see him in the Gospels, we see nothing but him going towards the weak. I mean, his, 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 his beatitudes are all about the lowly. 
and happiness coming to those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, the meek. So if the first is the assumption of power, the second is the assumption about the church. And here's where I want us to sit for a bit. So what is the assumption here? I think the assumption for us is this, that the church is at best a necessary institution. And you'll read echoes of this in just about any sociology book or any honest culture review in mainstream journals. The church, they would say, is a good place to find meaning, purpose. It's good for community building, emotional health. And they'd be right. It is a good place for that. You, you, you can follow the stats. You can follow the data. A, church is a good place to find meaning and purpose in life. But at worst, I think they would say, another assumption is that the church is a dangerous place to be. It can be traumatic emotionally, if not culturally dangerous. And you don't have to go far in your Google search to find scandal after scandal in churches across the globe. And I think John Steinbeck, not a, not a fan of Christianity, in his book East of Eden captures this sentiment. And he says this, the church and the brothel arrived in the far west simultaneously. And each would have been horrified to think it was a different facet of the same thing. But surely they were both intended to accomplish the same thing. The singing, the devotion, the poetry of the churches took a man out of his bleakness for a time. And so did the brothels. He just compared the church to a brothel, saying they're the same thing. And I think these two assumptions capture the best our culture has to offer when it comes to the question, why the church? Either, the, either a, it's a necessary option among many options or the single place to be avoided if you want to find happiness. But notice what Paul says about the church. And this is what we have to deal with. He says that the mystery of the church is gospel. He says it's good news. It's good news I came to preach. Now, in one sense, it's a church good news to the world. And you're sitting in a church right now. In what sense is this good news to the world? Well, Paul, first, Paul says it's broken. It brings in broken people living in, broken, in a broken world together. Again, this is what we read at the beginning, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We can't miss the significance of what he's saying in this context. He has just said that two opposing groups of people now have a common heritage. They're bound together like water and wet. And the import of this would have been massive. And to be quite frank, I think we no longer, and I may speak for myself, I wrestle with marveling at, at how impactful this has been to the world. The equality of all people is this natural assumption to us as the inequality of some was the assumption for both Jew and the Gentile. It's a marvel that the church, that in the church, that's what people found in the first century. They found a name. They found dignity. They found blessing. They found equality. They found all of those things. They found Jesus himself. And the singular Lord in their life outside of Rome, who would have called himself Lord, was the single one that did not reject them based on status or merit. That's, that is marvelous.
And he says, I mean, the, the, the move between the two groups, back in chapter 2, he says that this the Jew and Gentile, there was this wall of, of hostility. Hostile. I mean, think about that term. Two hostile groups that the assumption between two groups is one looked at the other and said, you are my enemy. And in Christ, they now sit at the table together. But notice Paul is not saying this. He's not saying, all right, guys, Jesus died, and now you guys just get to live together in peace. Just hang out. Figure it out. This isn't Paul's first century version of a coexist bumper car sticker. Just coexist. And I think the assumption of equality, at least in practice, is one of coexistence. You live here, I live there, we interact if we decide as long as you, you are protected from the worst parts of me and I from the worst parts of you. And I could benefit from the best parts of you and you from the best parts of me. At best, coexist. Now, Paul says that the church, we don't merely coexist and safely cohabitate the same space. No, you and I, without distinction, whether rich or poor, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, we are, notice what he says, co-heirs. We all receive equal amounts of access to the Father and grace from the gospel. We're co-heirs. We are all members of the same body. We are, we are organically connected to each other. If one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. If one is blessed, we're all blessed. If, if I smash my right hand, my foot doesn't get a pass on its pain. If I pluck out my right eye, my, my left hand deals with pain. And when one of us in the church suffers, both locally and even abroad, we all suffer, regardless of status, regardless of merit. And he says we are partakers of the same promise. That the spirit of God that produces faith and repentance and grants access to God is given to all believers without distinction. Back in, back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he says that in Christ we are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Now that, that is lofty and that sounds like stuff that is reserved for the best of the best. Paul says no. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor alike, male and female alike, all have access, all are raised and seated with him in the heavens. And I wonder how we fare in this truth. Are we walking in this, in this freedom? These privileges? And when I study my own heart, and I study it in action, I find I create far too many reasons to separate myself from fellow Christians and to walk with them as co-heirs, as members of the same body, and those who partake of the same promise. What does that look like? Well, I think I have to be careful here. So I'll speak for me. Well, I think it can look like being preoccupied with criticizing, then with showing mercy. The church is the easiest place to criticize. She is. Because we have a lofty view of humanity and a lofty view of God, and we never measure up. Never measure up. She's an easy person 
to criticize and very hard to show mercy to. But when we look at each other through the lens of the gospel, it's not that criticism shouldn't exist. But is there mercy in your criticism? Is it for her restoration? Is it for her glory? Or is it to give you and I an excuse to separate ourselves from one another? I think this leads to the next reason why the church is good news to the world. Paul says it's a singular place in the entire world tailor-made to men, broken people with the mercy of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 11. Let me read it. I, I, I love this. It's one, of the most, it's one of the most profound statements in the entire Bible. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You see, one of the ironies is that when the world says the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites and perverse people, and some would go as far to say some of the worst parts of humanity, the irony here is that they're right. But what evades them is that the church is structured to deal precisely with the worst parts of humanity. That's what the, the church, the infrastructure of the church, everything is tailor-made for sinners. And not polished, not just polished sinners. Not just the sinners who have acceptable sins. But for thieves on crosses who get a whisper of the gospel. So the question is to ask is what, not what does the world think about the church, but what does God say about the church? And this isn't a sleight of hand. It's the principal question to ask in these matters. And it's not an attempt to gaslight the world saying, where did the problem? It's you. No, because the cross takes seriously the tragedy of human sin with equal weight to, this, to its seriousness about mercy. So to ask the question, what does God say about the church, is to ask with the same energy as a mother would her child who wonders if mom loves them. What would you say to your child if, you're, if, if your daughter thought you don't love them? You would say, but what have I said about you? What does God say Oh, the church in these verses. Well, first he says, the church is the arena where sin meets his match in grace. He says, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. Grace, unmerited favor, dispensed to all without distinction. It's the grace of sins forgiven and broken relationships mended. But notice how this grace has a sharp edge. It has a point. He says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable Riches of Christ. Now, unsearchable has, it's, it's, it's more like it can't be exhausted. That's the idea. You can spend eternity plumbing the depths of Christ, and you would never come to the end of it. Not just exhaustible, but enough to handle all of your sins. You can never outsin his richness and mercy. You can never outrace it, ever. You see, the church is the place where Christ gets his hands dirty and deals with the complexities of human life. Now, I can't think about how remarkable this sounds to the low and destitute. And how, low, and how, how this sounds 
to you. Isn't it remarkable? That as you walk in here with your various moods and your various sins, whether you've exposed them or whether they're hidden, whether you're rich or poor, whether you find that you, that, well, you feel you have a place in the world or not, here you do. You have been given a name. Members of the body of Christ, partakers of the same promise, co-heirs. What rich dignity. But it's what Paul says next that reveals the depth of God's heart towards his people, the church. The first says is where sin meets its match in grace. Notice what he says next. That the church, this mystery, was hidden for ages in God. Hidden in God? It's as though Paul is saying that if you're able to go down deep into the heart of God, you know what you discover right there at the bottom? Mercy and love. That he planned and he will to show his people. And that is precisely... Why the church is the display of God's multifaceted wisdom. That's what it says there. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The manifold, multifaceted, like, like a prism, like a prism, not prison, prism with a thousand cuts. And you shine it in, in, the, in a bright light and you turn it. And with each turn, you get a new sparkle. That's the multifaceted wisdom of God. I mean, who would have thought, could, could you have written a better script that to save the world, a man naked and dying on the cross was going to do it? Could the man on the cross have ever thought with his last breath that he would have found hope and happiness in the man next to him on the cross? As the world around was mocking and jeering and having a party and gambling over the robe. As they're fashioning a crown, spitting on him. Right there in the midst of that, the hope of the world was being revealed. What authority to be able to say on the cross, to offer a blessing, you will be with me in paradise. Man, I think this is what confounds the world. You see, the church is a place where God has hitched his character to a people who constantly drag his name through the mud. And that's his modus operandi. That is just him. From the very first time sin came into the world, he hitched his name to his people. Knowing good and well that they're going to drag his name through the mud. Over and over and over again. And this is a place where you and I and various people of all backgrounds and sin struggles and personal struggles and, and socioeconomic backgrounds and people who have had issues with the church in the past and have, or who are trying now to reimagine what church could be for them. That all these, this, this place here, in other churches like it. But this is, this, this is what tells the world about the happiness that breaks in. This is what confounds the world 
And I think it does. It doesn't make sense that you and I come in here and we don't favor one over another. It doesn't make sense that we, we don't have VAP sections for the wealthy. And that we put those that aren't in the back. We don't advertise to our, to, to, man, it just, it just breaks my heart. I mean, as, as I get older and I, and I realize how influenced I am by advertisement, I realize how much advertisement just lies to us. And the worst, I think, is perfume and deodorant, and not deodorant, but cologne. It's not about the product. They promise you some sort of life. And it's never a lowly life. It's always the happy, rich, wealthy, big and muscular, thin and fit life that most of us in here will never have. It's just a lie. And we soak it up over and over again, don't we? And it destroys us. And we come to this place with all of our sins, all of our weakness, we can actually confess it and have somebody that will deal with it? Let me give a final example. I am not a baker, but I'm gonna give a baking, a baking example. So bear with me, so take a cake and break, break it down to its most basic ingredients. And imagine you knew nothing at all about baking cakes. So you see flour, sugar, and eggs. And you're wondering, what am I going to do with these things? And you read the instructions, mixed together. Like, mixed together? So you, you put the eggs and the flour and the sugar, and all you're left with is this sugary goo. You're like, this is not going to be tasteful. What, what, what is this? This won't be tasteful at all. And they say, put it in the oven. You're like, okay. And what happens? These various elements that by themselves you would imagine would create something rich and beautiful. And out comes a cake. I think that's what the church is like. You have, you have liars. You have adulterers. You have people who struggle with porn. You have people who struggle with depression. You have people that are rich. You have people that are poor. You have people that don't like one another. People on this side of the political spectrum angry at that person in the political spectrum. And we all come together. And even though it looks like we're dragging Christ's name through the mud, he's showing us mercy. And we get to taste it. It's, it's fantastic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it. But that's what we get every single time. When we sing songs about life and death, about hope and despair. Can you name another place in the world where every week you can sing about despair? I'm waiting. Any other place in the world? You can sing about hope. You can sing about sin. You can sing about a man dying on a cross. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. There's no other place like it. And that is what confounds the world. And that is what shows God's wisdom. And I think we need to hear that. Because we can, be, we can be so used to this thing called church that we can treat her either like a necessary institution for my well-being or a place to avoid. But God says way more about the church because he says way more about you who make up the church. And if God is willing to attach himself 
if he's willing to attach his glory to the church, to you, how magnificent is this place then? Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.